Well, we head into part four of our 1 Timothy series today. So grab those Bibles, have them open up at 1 Timothy 3. And again, as I always recommend, do have those Bibles open because it's not the words that I speak that will shape your lives. It's the word of God that will shape your lives. Now, so far in our series, in chapter one, we have seen how Paul corrected the false teaching that had come to the surface in the church of Ephesus. He corrected it by commanding their silence, removing the false teachers who refused to repent, and then declaring what sound and true doctrine is, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. In chapter two, we see how Paul went from sound doctrine to sound conduct, and he corrects the wayward conduct of the church of Ephesus. He commanded the whole church to pray evangelistically. He commanded men to repent from their anger and lift holy hands in prayer. And then he urged the women of the church to be serious in their learning of the word of God and to understand their role in the body of Christ. So we've looked at both sound doctrine and sound conduct. And today in chapter three, we head into looking at what godly leadership looks like. Now, there's quite a list of attributes and characteristics in chapter three, and we're going to go through each one. But we're going to be looking at the principles of what a godly leadership looks like. It was John MacArthur who said the ministry, effectiveness and testimony of any church is largely a reflection of its leaders. There's an intrinsic link between the godliness of the leaders and the godliness of the church. Some have coined it the Hosea 4.9 principle. And the verse reads, and it shall be like people, like priest. In simple terms, whatever the leadership is and whatever, whatever the leadership does, there is a high likelihood that the church will be the same. In fact, Paul says as much in Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, when you consider the church in Ephesus, we know that for the first three years, they had the Apostle Paul as their pastor. Then they had elders appointed to lead the church. But then something happened. False teachers crept in and laid waste to the sound doctrine and conduct of the church. Having been back for just a short while, the Apostle Paul now appoints Timothy, the young pastor, to be put in charge of returning the church back to sound doctrine and back to sound conduct. And crucially, this means that the godliness of the leadership must return. It holds on a firm grip of a godly leadership that sound doctrine and sound conduct will flow from there. As we walk through the first 13 verses of chapter 3, let us hold on to these simple facts. Church leadership is hard work. It is serious work, yet it is also rewarding work. Only a few will be called to leadership, and therefore we must consider with reverence and seriousness who should lead the church. So let's get into the text, heading into 1 Timothy 3, and we'll start in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Remember I said last week that when you see the phrase, the saying is trustworthy, what follows is a basic yet significant truth that carries incredible importance. And with such an introduction as a statement, it is good to break it down and truly grasp what is being said. I want you to note anyone 
which in the context has a masculine tense because we later say he desires a noble task. So Paul is specifically addressing the men of the church when it comes to the role of overseer. And we'll come back to that in a few moments as to why we can say that. Now we have two key words in this early statement. Uh, the first word is aspire from the Greek word orego which describes someone reaching out. The connotation is someone that is taking steps to acquire or stretching out to gain a firm grip. We then have the word desires, coming from the Greek word epithemio, which means to have a positive and passionate compulsion. And when you put arego and epithemio together, it speaks of both an outward and an inward pursuit. It speaks of someone who simply must do the task, Nothing else is in the heart's desire. There is no satisfaction in any other role than the task that is in front of them. It's almost painful for them not to do the role. But what's the role that we're talking about here? Well, Paul notes it's the office of overseer. And it's important that we see what this word overseer means. It's important we establish what we're talking about here. It comes from the Greek word episkopos which literally translates as bishop, and it's also used for the term elder or pastor. To aspire, to desire such a role, is to pursue a noble and honourable task. You see, in Paul's day, to pursue such a role was to pursue poverty, because there was no money in being an overseer. It was to pursue hatred, for church leaders were universally disliked, and it was to pursue persecution, for they were the target of the enemies of the church. However, it's not just about honour and doing a noble task. Note the word task, or in some Bibles it will translate it as work at the end of verse 1. This is not a figurehead position. There are key responsibilities to be undertaken. Taking them in order of how they actually appear in the New Testament, we're told in Scripture what the overseer's task is. It's to lead the church in decision-making, Acts 15, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The overseers are to rule and to have authority in the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour. They are to preach and teach again, 1 Timothy 5.17, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. The overseers are to pray for the sick, James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the overseer are to care and shepherd the church, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It is no small task to be an elder or a pastor of the church. Yet I want you to see two more things before we move on in the passage. There's absolutely nothing wrong in men in the church pursuing the office of elder or pastor. Notice Paul doesn't discourage it, nor does he warn men away from it. Rather, Paul recognises the monumental task that they seek to do and declares it is a noble desire to do so. 
And the second aspect that we need to see is that if you are led to do anything else, if you have a desire for any other role or any other task in life, you should do that rather than be an elder or pastor. Because eldership and being a pastor is a spirit-appointed role. It is one that you simply must do or you're going to end up being outside of the will of God. So if there's anything else you can do or anything else you want to do, you need to do that instead because this is a serious whole life commitment to the calling of God. And therefore, it's, if it's not your desire, if it's not your aspiration, then you should do something else because this is serious work in the church of Christ. Let's keep moving and head into verse two. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Therefore means we do not leave verse one behind, but we see it as the foundational truth. As it is a noble task, and as it is a honourable pursuit to seek being an overseer in the church, such an individual must be above reproach. It is essential that we see the word here, must. It is an absolute necessity that an overseer, a pastor, an elder is above reproach, which means there is nothing to accuse him of. He literally cannot be held to any crime or any sin. The overseer, the elder, the pastor is to be a model for the congregation to follow. And the only way that this is possible is through Psalm 119 verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Essentially, pastors and elders are to be in the word of God, guided by it, living through it, so that they are above reproach. It is this key command that the church must hold its elders and pastors accountable to. Remember, the church will be as the leader. If the elder or pastor begins to slip, so the church will. If the elder or pastor is above reproach, they have an example to follow. So how do we hold pastors and elders accountable to such a command? Well, what comes next from verse 2 through to verse 7 are 13 aspects of doctrine and conduct that should be evident in the overseer's life. If one of these 13 becomes an issue, then you could argue that the overseer is no longer above reproach. You see, everything flows out of that essential foundational command to be above reproach. Now, we're going to go through all 13. It might take us a little while, but I think it's important to see what we're holding leaders accountable to. So let us begin with the first one. He is to be the husband of one wife literally meaning that he is to be a one-woman man. Now, Paul is not referring to marital status here. Instead, he is referring to the moral behaviour, specifically within the context of sexual behaviour. Overseers are to be known as devoted to their wife, holding sexual purity in both thought and in action. I find it particularly interesting that this comes first in being above reproach. It's the hardest to keep and to honour and it's also the easiest for Satan to use to knock leaders down. Whether it be a single man holding to sexual purity or a married man who seeks only for his wife, the overseer is to hold to a strict sexual morality. Second, he is to be sober-minded. 
Although we think of the term sober with regards to alcohol, or rather the lack of alcohol, in the context we're seeing here, we're talking about a clear mind, someone who is both watchful and vigilant in their lives. It speaks of someone who can see what can distract from ministry that they are called to serve in, and then they're able to resist that distraction so they can remain vigilant and focused on the task ahead. Thirdly, he is to be self-controlled, an individual who is not rash in decision-making or in judgment. It speaks of someone who is ordered and disciplined in their minds. It's not someone who is chaotic in their thinking and unable to focus on the task at hand. Fourthly, he is to be respectable. If self-controlled refers to the mind, then respectable refers to the way of living, to be orderly and well-disciplined in all aspects of life. This may apply to how you dress, how you organise your day, how you go about the tasks in each day. But remember, being above reproach is to have nothing held against you. There should be nothing that anyone can say that you are disrespectful in thinking, doing, looking, behaving, saying. You're to be self-controlled and respectable. Number five, he is to be hospitable. Now here's one so often misinterpreted. Hospitality in the context of this passage is not to your best friends, but to strangers. It means to show love toward those you do not know. A great example of this is Luke 14, 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. You see, anyone can invite friends over to watch the football, have some food and enjoy each other's company. The elder, the pastor and the overseer of the church is to be known for showing such love to strangers, to ones they do not know. You can boast all you like that your table is full each week, your door is open, but it is meaningless if you shun people away whom you do not know or you do not want to know. At number six, he must be able to teach. Twelve of the qualifications listed relate to the character of the overseer. This is the only one, though, able to teach that refers to a skill or a gift. The pastor and elder is to be a student of the word of God and skilled in his ability to teach and impart understanding and wisdom. Clearly, to be effective in your teaching, all other 12 characteristics need to be true or you fall at the first hurdle in terms of being an example for the church to imitate. And when writing to Titus, Paul states in Titus 2.1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The teaching of God's word is the primary task of the pastor. It is the spirit-given ability of both depth of understanding and the opportunity to teach. And when I set out my working week uh, on a Sunday night, Monday morning, I have to be wise how I divide my time. As teaching is my primary task as a pastor, I need to always ensure that I weight it more in terms of my diary. Some may take 20 hours to write a sermon, some make 10. The key is that there should be no activity in the diary that takes more time out than the study and the teaching of God's word. 
Why? Because, well, we have nothing else to say and nothing else to point to but the Word of God. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, There is nothing new under the sun, and therefore I have nothing else to pontificate over. My entire task is to lead you to the Word of God where you'll find understanding and the promises of the Saviour. The primary task of the pastor elder is to teach the Word of God. Number seven, he must not be a drunkard. The pastor or elder should not be known for an association with alcohol. At first, we know that the Bible declares that drunkenness is a sin, yet here it's also about association. He should not be known for drinking sessions and the constant discussion or desire for an alcoholic drink. At number eight, he is not to be violent, but gentle. The pastor is never to be physical in anger. He's to be considerate and gracious, never bearing a grudge. Many will honour this first bit, ensuring that they won't be a fistfight within the church. However, the second is often forgotten. The leader is to be known as gentle. Number nine, he is not to be quarrelsome. There should be a reluctance to argue and to fight and to debate. There should be no desire to be contentious or to create an environment that allows a quarrel to fester. In fact, the leader who is allowed to be quarrelsome is likely to lead the church into a whirlwind of discussion and debate and frustration. They are to refrain from anything that would cause the church to quarrel. Number 10, he is not to be a lover of money. Money was the heart of the false teachers. More followers means more giving, which means more money. Whether this was for personal riches or riches in general, an overseer should not be known for the love of money. What is the love of money? It is both the pursuing of having more and the reluctance to give it out. We often talk about amassing wealth and the pursuit of money as the love of money. Yet the love of money is also shown when we refuse to give it out, when we hold it dear to our hands, when it has to be ours and we do not wish to give it out. The love of money is when we put restrictions on how we give out. Oh, well, that person doesn't deserve it, but this person does. Or that person isn't good enough in the eyes of the church, so this person will get it. The love of money is the pursuit of more and the unwillingness to give it out. Folks, that's just 10 of the characteristics that Paul has laid out. All of these must be evident in the pastor or elder's life. Yet there is more. Paul continues in verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The overseer is to manage his own household well to manage or to lead or to have authority over the household. They are to do so well, which can also mean to do so excellently. The household, meaning not just the members of the family, such as children, but all activities, including finances and possessions in the home, needs to be managed excellently. Now, with respect to children, some have abused this verse and stated that you cannot lead the church unless you're Christians, your children are Christians. It does not say that, though, in the text, does it? Instead, the pastor or elder is to manage the household so that the children bring honour to their parents and are a testament to their parenting. If your son or daughter is out bullying other kids in the local park or shoplifting, then I can tell you right now that that does not reflect a house that is well managed. If your children reflect a chaotic home life or a questionable upbringing, then not only is the household mismanaged, but the church would likely be mismanaged under your authority. 
Now, I'm not saying that the pastor's children need to be perfect. There is no such thing. And in fact, many pastor's children have been negatively impacted by the church demanding that they be perfect. What we see here is in the confines of children learning and growing and developing in the home, they are to reflect a parenting that is both dignified and is God-honouring. To some extent, the home is the test ground, the primary responsibility. The church is the outworking of what's being practised at home. To some extent, the pastor elder that you see at the church is the pastor elder that you see at the home. Uh, let's go into our final two characteristics in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. At number 12, they are not to be a recent convert. No stipulation is given on the length of faith, rather this is about the maturity of faith. The overseer should be mature, knowing the dangers of pride and therefore practising the wisdom of humility. Now, we're all too quick to appoint leaders before we've actually allowed them time to grow and develop in their faith. In fact, there is one church I know that has a 12-week course that if you go on and you complete, then you can be a leader in the church. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for one day or 10 years. Do this 12-week course and you're in. And all I can say to that is no, no, no. The Bible commands maturity, not a tick list. It commands a faith that is well known and well established, not a piece of paper to show that you can somehow hash together a sermon or two and be able to lead in some form of context. We cannot lead new converts to become elders in the church because there is a danger that they'd be filled with pride and therefore picked off by the devil. Instead, we seek a mature faith. Number 13. They're to be well thought of by outsiders. Get this, the leader of the church is to be known in the community they live in. They're to be known by non-Christians. Now I know some church leaders who have less than 10 people that know them outside of the church. In fact, probably several of the people they know outside of church don't even know that they are Christians. Clearly to be well thought of means that the community needs to know who you are. Pastors and elders, yes, are to be in the study, doing the work in the word of God. However, they're also called to be out in the world to live and shop. They are to know the cashier at the local co-op. They're to know their neighbours. They're to know the local Starbucks barista or the cafe manager. They're to be known and they're to be well thought of. Do you see in all of these 13 characteristics, the elder or pastor is to be sound in doctrine and in conduct in the home in the church and in the community. <coughs> Excuse me. There should not be a stone that can be turned and some dark secret found. There should be no hypocrisy evident where the home life is somehow different than the church life. As they are respected and well thought of in the church, they are to be respected and well thought of in the community. If you're not in the community, you fail one of the characteristics, you're not above reproach and therefore you cannot be a pastor or elder. Do you see the seriousness that is to live a home life, a community life and a church life that is one and the same? So if that is the elders and the pastors of the church, what of deacons? The standards for deacons, as we will soon see, is not inferior to the elder. The key difference is, yes, the ability to teach, but the spiritual maturity of the deacon is at the same level as the elder, to be consistently above 
reproach. Let's find out more in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The English word we have for deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which refers to service or one who serves. Now, many will go to the seven elected servants in Acts 6 to say that's when deacons came about and they were first introduced there. However, in Acts 6, we don't have any specific diakonos word for the established role as deacon. Yes, they are servants, but they're not yet elected as a deacon. What we find in verse 8 onwards is the established role of deacon given foundational characteristics to hold firm to. And I want you to note the key word of likewise, just as elders and pastors are to be above reproach, so deacons likewise are to be above reproach. Just as elders and pastors, we have a list of accountability characteristics, ones that are to be evident in the deacon's life, therefore proving that they are above reproach. Yes, we have the difference of the ability to teach, but in all other things, they are to be above reproach. Here's the list that they are given. Number one, they are to be dignified. They're to be serious in mind and character, neither flippant nor silly. These are individuals who will go into the homes of those who are sick, who are elderly and are in need of help. They must be serious individuals, for the church cannot send flippant and silly characters into a situation where somebody needs help. Secondly, they're to not be double-tongued. This refers to saying one thing to one person, then saying something completely different to another. Deacons are to be trusted to speak the truth in all circumstances, never twisting or changing what the truth is. They should carry a high level of integrity and honesty. There should be nothing in their speech, words, emails, texts, whatever it may be, that should call into question their integrity. And number three, they're not to be addicted to too much wine. Again, as with elders, they're to not be preoccupied with alcohol when the next drink is available, when they're next going to be able to relax with a glass of wine. They're not to be known for their ability to always want that alcoholic drink. Instead, they're to be known for the ability to moderate and be occupied by the Lord, not for their need for alcohol. At number four, they're not to be greedy. The office of deacon often takes responsibility, for instance, of church finances. The deacon is to be God-honouring in how they manage such funds, never seeking gain for themselves or dishonest gain for the church. They're to hold a high level of integrity, not just in their words, but with regards to their role. Specifically, we see here often in the early church, the role of treasurer. Number five, they must have a sincere faith. I've heard it said that elders are spiritual, and deacons are practical. This may be true in their function, as in one teaches the word of God and one practically serves, but it's completely wrong in character. Deacons are to believe in the truth of Christ and they're to live in that truth. They're to have a strong knowledge of the word of God and therefore live by strong convictions. Deacons should be in the word of God as Psalm 1-2 states, both day and night. Now, I'm going to unusually do something here and skip verse 10 and 11, and we'll come back to that in a few moments. Instead, we're going to jump all the way into verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. 
we're continuing these characteristics of the deacon. Number six, they're to be a husband of one wife. We've already seen this in the eldership. Deacons are to hold a sexual purity just as the elders and pastors are. Number seven, they're to hold and manage their household and children well. Again, just as elders, the deacons have responsibility to manage their household in such a way that reflects godly principles. What we're seeing here is foundational characteristics that deacons are to hold to, all of which prove that they are above reproach, exactly the same as pastors and elders. Now, with all that said, and as I absolutely roast in this room in the English warm weather, let us move into verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. It's interesting that the role of elder and pastor does not have this testing mentioned. And there's much debate as to why. However, it's quite likely that the deacons were elected due to their desire and skill to serve. Therefore, they were given trusted positions that often had aspects of privacy involved. The holding of the roll call of the widows, the managing of the money of the church, the distribution to the food, the food to the hungry. Therefore, they are to be tested or in other words, evaluated to ensure that they can undertake such a role. However, understand this, that it's not a one-off test, but an ongoing test. This is not the 12-week certificate to say you can do it. This is a ongoing evaluation that if you continue to remain blameless, then you can continue to do your role. If reproach is found, if there is something slipping in their lives, then that individual has to be removed from the trusted position until it is resolved. For some reason, we're often scared in the church to hold deacons accountable for their behaviour, even though the Bible commands it. However, think about this in the reverse. Do you really want to send someone to the sick, the poor, the orphan or the widow that you cannot trust or predict what they're going to say and do? Do you really want to give someone the responsibility of the distribution of food or the management of finances when you can't trust them? You can't know what they're going to do. Paul is clear here. Do not let deacons serve if they are not blameless. Simple, clear, 100% should be obeyed. If the deacon is above reproach and blameless, they can serve. If there is something slipping and they are not blameless, they are not to serve the church. This is the protection, the shepherding of the flock, that we do not let loose on the children of God, those who do not hold a high level of integrity and a high level of honesty. I know time is going on, so let's head into verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, there is much debate here over the use of the word wives. The word in Greek is interchangeable with the word for women. And whether Paul is referring directly to the wives of deacons or women who are deacons, what is clear is the office of deacon, the role of serving in an official capacity, is for both men and women. Some use the term deaconess, but there's no such term in the Bible. Essentially, what we're saying here is that we have men who take on the role of service, meaning a deacon, and we have women who take on the role of service, meaning a deacon. And please note, the same stipulation is not used for eldership or for being a pastor. Therefore, we can deduce from the passage the role of elder and pastor is a male-only role, and the role of deacon is both female and male within the church. Notice again, though, the word likewise. Just as elders 
and male deacons, women who serve as deacons, are to be above reproach. They prove this by being dignified, leading serious lives before the Lord, controlling their tongues just as male deacons are known for honesty and integrity. They are sober-minded just as elders and male deacons and they are finally faithful in all things. They are to be above reproach in all aspects of service for the eternal king. Do you see this? Pastors, elders, male deacons, female deacons, be above reproach. Verse 13, for those who will serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. For those deacons who serve the Lord, being above reproach and honouring all of these characteristics, there are two promises given. And I want you to note this is given to the deacons, not the elders and pastors. They, later in the New Testament, are shown to be worthy of double honour. But in this passage, the promises are specifically to the deacons. They are promised good standing. They'll be well thought of and highly respected in the church. They will be the go-to people for the congregation. They will be loved only if they remain above reproach. Secondly, they will have great confidence in their faith. They will know the security of Christ and they will be filled with the assurance of salvation and power through Jesus. This confidence spurs them on to serve all the more, not looking back to the old life, instead serving each day with a level of joy that cannot be matched in anything else. As they gain confidence by being above reproach, serving the Lord in all dignity and integrity, they then want to serve all the more. It's a positive argument. The more you serve in a godly way, the more you want to serve in a godly way. So there you have it, folks, in 13 verses. Pastors, elders, male deacons, female deacons, all commanded to be above reproach, all held accountable through key characteristics and all blessed through the one they serve. Now, that's the academic overview of the passage. The question is, in closing, what are the points we are to take and to apply to the local church setting that we are in, for instance, at Lincoln Baptist Church, but wherever you're tuning in from? And really, I have three things, and I'll try and make them quick in how we can apply this. The reason I'll try and make it quick is it is boiling in this room, and if you can't tell from looking at me, I am absolutely roasting. I'm a Scotsman in England that's not used to the hot weather. But here is the three key things I want you to take from this passage. How does this apply to Lincoln Baptist Church? How does this apply to Lincoln Baptist Church? Now, I understand as the pastor of Lincoln Baptist, that we operate a leadership team with neither term of elder nor deacon used. The question is why? What has caused the church to walk away from such terms? Where are the elders? Why do we currently only have one woman on our team? Where are the other Bible teachers? Why does the constitution make no mention to the early model of pastor, elders, deacons? Clearly, many questions, and those questions need to be answered. Therefore, in the coming weeks and months, I will commission the church to look into, to investigate our current format of leadership and how we can ensure a biblical model of leadership that we find in 1 Timothy 3. 
Yes, this will likely mean some difficult conversations. Yes, this will likely mean change. What we're looking for is something that is abundantly scriptural, abundantly focused on the truth of God's word, and that is reflected in being above reproach in pastor, elders, and deacons. And so in the coming weeks and months, we will look and commission that study to see what has been going on in terms of our leadership team and how we ensure a 1 Timothy 3 principle. And the second thing is, how does this apply to the church universally? How does this apply to the church universally? We are in an age where the biblical model of leadership is not wanted. It's not cool. In fact, sometimes it's not with the times. We've degraded it and allowed it to look more like a secular business world than the Church of Christ. More than that, it takes but a few moments on social media or search engines to see church leaderships around the world crumbling due to sexual sin, financial corruption, or even a complete lack of faith in Christ. Can you even believe it that it's now a thing in our world that there are pastors, elders, and deacons serving in churches around the world who do not even believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is the Lord and Saviour that we hold to for salvation? And therefore, two things are clear. The church, universally, is losing its grip on biblical truth. And it cares even less about accountability. As per last week's sermon, where are the holy men leading the church? Where are they? Where are the women who are serious about discipleship and serious about serving the church? Where are the accountability principles that hold leaders to be above reproach? Whether it's our church, the church in Lincoln, or any church around the globe, where is the desire to hold firm to scripture and not budge an inch? I, in the not too distant past, went to a local, here in Lincoln, ecumenical gathering where several churches and several church leaders were in attendance. A prominent church leader in our local setting stood up and declared, we must let go of our biblical principles so that we can work together to make our city better. Let me just say that again so you can grasp what is said by a high-ranking church leader here in Lincoln. Let us let go of biblical principles so we can work together to make our city better. Simply, no and wrong. We need leaders in all churches right now to stand and say, if the Bible says it, we'll do it. If the Bible says don't do it, we will run away from doing it. When are we going to get serious about holding leaders accountable, holding the church to account? I tell you this now, we cannot partner, cannot, will not partner with any church, local or global, that does not have, first, a firm grip of the Bible. No, we won't let go of our biblical principles. We will hold firm to scripture. We will hold it tight and we will not budge an inch because it's in the word of God that we're above reproach and we can lead the people of God. Finally, and number three, how does it apply to our response to church leaders? How does it apply to our response to church leaders? It's a monumental task of leading the church. I've been doing it eight years now in several churches, and I can tell you right now, it is one of the hardest yet most rewarding thing I've ever done. But when we look at church leaders, there is a response from the congregation that is expected. When church leaders are above reproach, held to the characteristics and seen as worthy of those positions, there is then a response from the congregation that is expected. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you see this? Hold your leaders accountable and then follow their lead. All too often I've seen how a church completely wipes out a leader who is God-honouring and above reproach because they simply don't like to follow, they don't like to obey, and the idea of submitting to an authority is simply repulsive to them. The biblical standard is for the church to hold their leaders accountable and then follow those who serve wholeheartedly in Christ. So in our arrogance as the church, we need to not wipe out good leaders because somehow we don't like the idea of following. Instead, we need good leaders to fight the fight and we're to follow behind them. I, of course, I'm a Scotsman and I think quite clearly of the film Braveheart. I also have a favourite film in Gladiator and we have in Braveheart that wonderful character by Mel Gibson and we have in Gladiator the wonderful character in Russell Crowe and both of them do what? They lead their army, they lead the fight. Now I'm not going to question their characters right now, it's film, it's not real on the film. In the church we are to have leaders above reproach held to account for their character and then they are to lead the church with the church following them into the good fight. We need to stop protecting those who fight against a godly leadership. Instead, we need to sure up those who serve the Lord for what the leadership is, the church becomes. What the leadership is, the church becomes. So really, two very quick things before I close in prayer, because I know my time is up. First, if you are now, in this moment, known for attacking godly leadership, known for your grumbling against it, and known for your walking away from godly leadership, let me say this to you now. You won't be protected. You won't be guarded with that view. Instead, by the command of God's word, we'll seek you to repent from such a behaviour. If you are known as someone who follows godly leadership, if you are known for someone who prays for that leadership, if you are known as someone who serves that leadership, let me say this, as leader of leaders here at Lincoln Baptist, I will do my utmost to be myself above reproach, holding to a sound character, and to lead my leaders to be above reproach and to hold to a sound character so that you can have confidence that as you follow us, you have confidence that you are imitating Christ and confidence that you are following leaders who have the flag of Jesus Christ flying high and that this church will do amazing things for the gospel. And so I ask, hold your confidence in us as I seek to hold confidence in the word of God. My time is completely up, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for church leaders here and around the globe who have stood and have been above reproach and who hold to godly characteristics. Father, I think of those men who I have followed over the years, those men who have been my pastor and my elder. Father, I praise you for them, for their example, for their willingness to serve, for their willingness to work hard, for their willingness to be held accountable. Father, I pray as the pastor of Lincoln Baptist that you would hold me and that you would help me be above reproach, that you would help me not have have anything that people can say against me. 
Father, I confess to you, I know so many times that my character begins to waver and I pray wholeheartedly that you would sure me up, that you would fill me up with the word of God so that I would not sin against you. And Father, I pray that for each one of my leaders right now. Father, I pray that each one would be above reproach in sound conduct and sound doctrine. And Father, we pray that the church would have confidence in its leaders as it seeks to propel the gospel forward. And Father, we pray right now that we would hold the church accountable, that we would not shy away from saying that is false doctrine, that is false teaching. We will not shy away from saying this is the word of God and this is what will follow. And Father, we pray in all these things that you would gain the glory. Father, let everyone forget anything that has just simply come from me and let them hold to the word of God here in 1 Timothy 3. We pray this in your name. Amen.